Today on Basic, the original host of Yo! MTV Raps, Fab Five Freddy. Mainstream radio was not playing hip-hop. It was literally and completely underground culturally. People are asking for cable just to get MTV. When I heard that song, F the Police, man, MTV is not going to let this shit happen. When you look at the acts that debuted Tupac, Snoop, you know, N.W.A., name them. They almost all debuted next to me on your MTV Raps. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic. I'm Doug Herzog, and I got more hits than Sadahara O. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I believe strongly in fighting for my right to party. There you go. Basic is the official podcast of the unofficial history of basic cable television. From MTV to Mad Men, Jen and I explore the shows, networks, personalities, and milestone moments that define TV in the basic cable era. On today's episode, we take a look at MTV's groundbreaking hip-hop franchise, Yo! MTV Raps. So the show premiered on MTV in 1988, and rap music had been around for a while at that point, but was really starting to become more of a national phenomenon. And the show was created by two guys, Ted Demi and Pete Doherty, and it quickly became the place to see all the great hip-hop artists of the day. But Ted and Pete worked for you, right, Doug? Oh, yeah. And two white guys, by the way, who worked really, really hard to bring rap music to MTV, banging on all the executive doors in a big fight to get the show on the air and ultimately did with game-changing results. Fab Five Freddy was the original host of Yo! and he helped bring hip-hop to the masses, jump-starting a musical and cultural revolution in the process. He's also an artist, filmmaker, and founder of a new cannabis brand, Be Noble. Uh, let's welcome hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and stay tuned afterwards as Jen and I break it all down. We are so excited to welcome Fab Five Freddy to the Basic Podcast. Freddy, welcome. Great hey. to see you. Hey, nice for nice to be here. Great to see you guys. Great, great to hear you guys. Yes, <laughs> you guys sound good. <laughs> Thank you. We are here to talk about Yo MTV Raps and the genesis of that show. <clears throat> uh, obviously, rap as a cultural force was around for several years, almost a decade, really, before Yo came along. True. Um, why do you think it, why did it take so long for MTV to pick up on it from your perspective as somebody who was very much involved from the beginning? Sure. Well, you know, I was a fan. I was tuned in. I didn't have cable, but it was such a cultural phenomenon, this new kind of uh, uh, tele television show that was sort of like a radio station, but was, um, you know, uh, playing these, this new thing called music video. So it was super exciting, but it was unfortunate that uh, black acts weren't getting equal billing, but mirror the, the you know my understanding is the early MTV, which was mirroring the model of uh, radio in America, it was kind of segregated somewhat. So unfortunately, MTV kind of followed that, but still, it was an exciting thing to see what this was. Super, um, you know, I'd go to visit a friend in Manhattan or in the few parts of Brooklyn that were wired then, and you'd sit all day. It was just an amazing thing. Just everything about cable was super exciting. Just no commercials, clear reception all the time. Like I grew up with the kind of TV, you had to put the aluminum foil on the tips of the antenna and then you had to hold it just to get the reception, especially in a sports game, so you could see stuff. So I'm comfortable with that era. So it was miraculous and just really next level. Everything that was going on regarding cable, here comes this show playing music all day. And it was amazing. Yeah. So I guess the resistance to rap 
overall, as a cultural movement, even though MTV was what it was before it took this radical move and jumped way ahead of damn near everything because radio, mainstream radio was not playing hip hop. There was one 24 hour hip hop station on AM radio in Los Angeles called KDAY. That was like amazing, but it was AM. And when everything now, you really want to hear things with good fidelity on FM. Um, New York had a couple of weekend shows, um, a couple of hours, Friday, Saturday night, some other funkier shows, super late night, middle of the week, like the Supreme Team. And that's what it was. If you were tuned in like I was then early on, you had your boombox set up with a fresh cassette ready to record because that was the only way you can get to hear this music unless you were connected to one of the DJs from the Bronx up in Manhattan or wherever in the city that were making it happen. So that was the landscape of this burgeoning new culture. It was literally and completely underground culturally. Mm-hmm. Eddie, did you not have cable when MTV first approached you? No, because um, I, you know, by the time I was on the uh, downtown Lower East Side scene, none of my friends had cable. That was a luxury, whatever it cost to have cable back then. And I'm sure it was not much. It was a luxury. You mentioned you were a little bit um, suspicious of how MTV programmed their music and uh, you and you didn't have cable. You weren't a big, a, a big viewer. Right. So what did you think about MTV when you first, you know, joined up and started working there? I never really spent much time in the office through my whole tenure. I'd visit here and there. Um, a few execs I got to know, including you, Doug. Everybody was really cool. Um, but I saw the change underway that they made this radical move to once again jump ahead of all these other outlets in the culture, including mainstream radio, which was not playing rap, BET. And I understood where that was coming from because it was very aggressive culturally. Black folks had kind of just come through. um, If you look at all the struggles and civil rights and George Jefferson moving on up, it was, it was kind of moving away from that um, image of the streets, if you will, um, the reality of that rap brought it right to that and was a big uh, a confrontation, if you will, to what had gone on in mainstream black music, R&B, soul, funk, et cetera. Um, so it was a big thing. And I just I watched this transition happen. I was obviously I was a, I was in the middle of it. So it was in the first few episodes. I don't know if you can remember what artists sure. you, you were featuring at that time. One of the first shows was one of those big rap concerts that would go on then, similar to the where the where the pilot episode was shot. I think this one was called the Dope Jam, and it was out at Nassau Coliseum. Once again, ten or so of the hottest acts: Run DMC, LL, KRS-One, Eric B and Rakim, all performing. And we went out and shot a, an episode there with that is the back. Drop interviewed some of the acts in between Dougie Fresh, um, Eric B and Rakim, and it, it was incredible. It was just really great and worked really well. How how quickly did the um, what was then called the rap music community um, mm-hmm. respond to the fact that MTV was doing this show? And uh, did that take some convincing? Did they jump right in? Well, oh, tell us about on. that. It was so uh, embraced with such enthusiastic energy, really at that time, you know, hard to think of the time. Luckily we lived through it when the internet 
was not in existence. So it was tell a friend to tell a friend. I don't even know if I even had a voicemail um, answering machine yet, speaking of technology, but it was a friend would tell a friend to tell a friend, and then people would record things on VHS tape. Those tapes would get passed around. It's hard to really explain the excitement, the enthusiasm, if you were plugged into what rap was to see people you had heard. And then the videos, you know, the, the instincts behind the culture um, were to take it to the streets to really show that street energy that these, you know, that you knew was was there um, if you kind of knew. So that was just a beyond um, exciting for people to see LL Cool J, to see Run DMC, to see, you know, all of these acts in their element, you know, doing their thing in the, with this incredible new medium, you know? I mean, just for Black folks to be seeing each other on screens was still a limited thing happening. There were only two or three TV shows where you got to see Black life. And that was, you know, sitcoms, you know, the Jeffersons, Good Times, you know, Cosby. It wasn't a whole lot. And here you got rap, you got this energy, you got people wearing these new clothes, being real de- defiant, the beats, the rhythms. So it pushed the culture with uh, sound and picture in a way that is hard to compare to anything because nothing existed prior that was comparable. So I know you could see like the ratings and you knew how well that Yo MTV Raps was doing. Yeah. But did you have a sense as to how it was connecting with people outside New York? Um, Well, yes. And one of the things that we decided we were going to have to do, because this is a nationally broadcast show, was find what was going on outside of New York, of which I knew very little. Because once again, um, I knew everything about that happened in hip hop in New York. But we were getting stories about, you know, we knew that things were happening in Philly. Just heard a little bit about Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Other things were going on there. And then we we realized, like, okay, well, one of the things that we were going to do is travel to these other parts of the country so it wasn't just a New York thing all day, every day. And, um, yeah, so we began to get word. And then I remember Ice-T, who was an early guest, um, as he was, be, you know, figuring out how to become Ice-T, he was saying that in L.A., in Compton, in so many areas, people are asking for cable just to get MTV. It was like, to and to see your MTV raps, because it wasn't on the radar for people in the hood or real Black inner city areas and other parts of the country. But when they heard that there was this whole new new thing going on, and uh, that was that was exciting. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Taking Yom TV Raps you know, to the streets and doing it from the streets was such an important part of his success. One of the ones that uh, stands out for me is tell us about when uh, the show went to Compton and you spent the day with NWA. What do you remember about that day? Right. Sometime early 89, uh, we go out to LA. And so Ted was like, look, Easy's got this new group, um, NWA. We're going to do a show with them because it's really our first time in LA. Let's rent a truck and ride around so then people can see L.A. because everything's about driving out here. So I go, yeah, that's a good idea. So we said, yeah, we're going to rent a flatbed truck so we can all be in this thing and ride around and see. But then Ted said something interesting. He said, Easy Easy E said, listen, guys, you can't wear red and you can't wear blue. And I was like, what the hell? We knew nothing about L.A. gang culture, right? And I'd been to L.A. several times before for art projects, lived in LA for a while, but I was only in the West Hollywood area. I drove through Compton and stuff, but I never really understood what was what or what the differences were. So Ted says, don't wear red, don't wear blue. I said, okay, I got a cool black outfit. And um, boom, so we show up and the the location was um, the welcome to Compton sign is our backdrop. And here's all these guys that are NWA. And some of them, I recognize that they were featured in some of these early EZE videos. So I was like, okay, cool. And they were all wearing black. And I remember um, we were just about to tape or in between taping one of the first opening segments, some guys rolled up in a car. It's like a 64 Chevy or something. And they looked like they recognize me. And so a typical New York thing to do is to throw up a peace sign, which, which is like a greeting. 
I was like, yeah, what's up? And they looked at me and nodded and they drove off. Ice Cube came right over to me and he said, hey, Fab, listen, man, if you throw up a peace sign out here, it's best to turn your hands this way. Because if you throw it up like that, that's a gang sign. Once again, I didn't know what he was talking about. But when you're in the hood and you're a guest, you you know, you do what you're told. Remember, Easy e was wearing like a bulletproof vest over his black outfit, which we thought, you know, Easy was always cracking up. He seems to seem like a very funny, easy to get along with guy. Easy E was easy to get along with. And him and Ted just joking, snapping on each other the whole time, which I thought was really cool. I hadn't listened to NWA's album. And later that night, I listened to the album. I'm in my room, Mondrian Hotel. I grabbed the Walkman. I put the cassette tape in. I put the headphones on. I'm listening several times while listening. I snatched the headphones off of my head. I cannot believe what these guys are saying. The records are dope, but I'm going, man, MTV is not going to let this shit happened. We just shot an incredible show, great scenery, stuff I've never seen. We know the country's never seen. They're going to pull this whole thing, baby, because this is... When I heard that song, F the Police, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. This is too over the edge. I cannot believe where they're going with this. Well, you know, as they say, the rest is history. The word of mouth just went so rapid where they just became literally the biggest group in hip hop, like really quickly. It was phenomenal um, to watch that happen. So that was one of, and interestingly, in the many, many shows in the six or seven years your MTV Rats happened, that's probably one of people's most famous episodes where I took that truck ride. They go, man, you took that ride through, through Compton and in the hood. It was like, wow, you know, it's pretty, pretty uh, memorable. Well, you guys were you guys were breaking ground everywhere you went. Freddie, do you remember the Grammy boycott and oh, the man. party that MTV had? <laughs> yeah. So the first time the Grammys decides to give a rap award, a hip hop award, they also said that this presentation was not going to be televised. And we're making big noise. We have a significant impact on the whole cultural landscape. And we all felt myself and Ted and Peter, we were like sitting back going, man, that's, that's not cool. And so as um, we reached out and talked to the other artists that were nominated, they weren't happy with it too. And so the idea was cooked up that let's boycott the Grammys and let's give a boycott the Grammy party and let's um, film a Yo! MTV Raps at this boycott the Grammy party in L.A., it was really like um, Cat in the Fiddle. It, yes, that was the spot. Cat in the Fiddle on Sunset Boulevard was where we held this party. People that have that were all letting us know that was the hottest after the Grammy party. Malcolm Forbes, the billionaire owner of Forbes magazine, rode up on his on his motorcycle and did a segment with my. Uh, I did a segment with Slick Rick. Ice-T and Malcolm Forbes talking about, man, I love rap, baby. I got the chapter and the verse. We was like, yo, this is crazy. <laughs> Little Richard showed up. I did a segment with Little Richard and all the other acts that boycotted the Grammys all showed up. 
let them let them let the audience know what we were doing. We weren't happy with the way the Grammys was treating us, and uh, it was one of those moments that we just had took control of the situation, and we ran away with had the hottest post Grammy party that year. And and you better believe, ever since then, you know the Grammys televised all them rap awards. You know, it's like, how could we be so corny? <laughs> but you know what's funny about that to me is just the people you describe at that event and just like the, the weird intersections of just so many different people. And then yes. in the past few years, like the Grammys is constantly trying to orchestrate that, like getting different, you know, younger artists and older artists to perform together. And it's like, yeah. you guys were just doing it naturally. Like just. Yeah. It was very organic. And we, you know, once, once again, Ted particularly very much a fan uh, of, of the music of the culture. So our fingers were clearly on the pulse of what was going on. And we were like, you know, following that energy that the culture was about. Like we were ready to confront you and to let you know, like, you know, we're not backing down, you know, I mean, you know, run DMC Aerosmith collaboration walk this way was a perfect kind of iconic moment that sent a message, like, you know, what the culture was about. Like we're going to break through these walls and, we are all come together and party together, which is the best way to do it. You know what I'm saying? And so that was, I think, what went down um, early on with Yo. It was a real uh, transformational uh, dynamic going on, which is pretty amazing to be in the middle of. So mm-hmm. MTV's blown up. Rap music's blowing up. Yo right. MTV Raps is blowing up. And yeah. now Fab Five Freddy is blowing up. So how did how did all this change your life and what impact did it have on you know <laughs> your trajectory cable was not ubiquitous and so you could still almost be an anonymous in a lot of situations then another thing happened where co 45 beer which had used this actor billy d williams as their pitch man and, and for like a long time decided they wanted to bring a, some younger energy to their marketing. And they got me <laughs> to do a Co 45 commercial. Wait, 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 wait. If, if I were, if, can we find these on YouTube, Freddie? You better there? believe you can find them all. <laughs> Everything lives on YouTube, baby. I, I think we have our first sponsor. Look at you. <laughs> Co 45. <laughs> That's interesting. The sponsor of podcast. Well, I tell you, it was crazy. So, we shoot the commercial in Paris for some weird reason. I think it was the end of the budget period and they had this excess money. So it was like, it could have been shot in any soundstage in New York. They went to shoot in Paris, spent up the rest of the money. Anyway, got to do this Code 45 commercial with Billy D. Williams, which would play all of the time. Like, you know, not just on your TV raps, but BET, basketball games, you know, anything. And so that made people kind of, come at me a lot more man and which is very awkward because i've never been a bodyguard guy like i don't need a bodyguard even when it was really intense i'm like pretty solo um but it got kind of awkward where i had to like uh okay this is not gonna work i gotta leave this situation (laughs) these kids being too hectic but it was all good though no problem Can you imagine a situation where in the current landscape, something like this could happen again? Because like back in the 80s, it was like 
radio was still a conduit for this stuff and MTV yeah. was a huge conduit. Everybody's eyes were looking at, you know, a few things to, to kind of get a sense of the culture. And now we look in so many different places. If there so, were a new music yeah. movement, like, could it become mainstream in the same way that rap and hip hop did? I mean, you know, we have a, once again, a completely unique and a new, relatively new landscape right now with, with, with the internet, um, which is now in everybody's pocket, you know, with these cell phones and instant access to, I mean, everything, anything that people push out there, like we, it's just all a few clicks away, I like to say. So it's, um, it's amazing for a person that just has broad interests and broad tastes, but it's kind of difficult I'm watching for artists or acts that are de developing to stay off of posting. I think um, the whole method now or the mandate that you have to push everything out there all the time and then constantly, which works for a lot of acts, I think spoils them some of the mystery and the intrigue that if you do have a hit record, um, people naturally want to know more about you. And I think, I guess, because that's what I come from and it's, I see how difficult it is to manage um, holding back from sharing what you're doing or what you're creating with the world. That's one of the things I feel about hip hop, music, culture in general. It was a considerable period of time, a good 10, 15 or so years where hip hop was developing aggressively in New York. And the expectations were not, I'm trying to have chart topping hits. I just want to be somebody in my neighborhood, in my hood, on my block, you know, and it was a focus on that, that sent, Roots deep, deep down, it seems, that were able to sustain then the time when, when MTV came around. It had been going on for a while. There was a, there was a structure there. People didn't know how to make hit pop records, the four to three minute song, because some of the first rap songs that came out, Rapper's Delight, this, that, and the other, dudes rapped 10, 15 minutes. There was no structure no like okay four bars of this give me 16 bars of that nobody figured that out it's like literally i'm gonna rap until the break of dawn you know <laughs> on and on like when rick rubin talks about when the beasties when the when like rick the classic period him in the nyu dorm mike d from the beasties going through a box of like demo tapes he hears this kid, LL Cool J. LL is rapping nonstop. He's not stopping. And, and Rick is like, yo, this, this kid is hot. Let's have him come up. When Rick talks about how he made them records, he was like, okay, well, let's, let's take this part here and let's make that the hook. And we'll do X amount of bars of this. And then we'll do that. And he structured these records. You know, LL Cool J. I'm bad. Mama said, knock you out. Like, how, how did your uh, Young TV raps uh, chapter end? I can't, I honestly don't remember the end of the story. You know, Budgets were getting cut. I think one of the things that happened, which was unique in the beginning of Yo, but then labels, it became something that began to look like payola when it was not, but just based on the way. In the beginning, some of the first trips that we took to cover acts in Yo MTV Raps, the labels would pay us a, a portion of the expenses. So we'd be, okay, they'd pay to fly us to interview NWA in their, in their hood to showcase them. It became questionable somewhat the way that could look, like they're paying for that 
opportunity. No, they mm-hmm. weren't paying. They're paying for the opportunity, but it was because we chose to to showcase them. Anybody cutting a check couldn't get on. Yo, no, that was not going down. But there seemed to be cutbacks in the budget. We weren't, the whole thing with my show was being able to travel, which we would do quite a bit. Um, Ed and Dre were in a studio setting, being kind of comedy, like in a hip hop clubhouse. But my main thing was like, I'm going out oftentimes. You know, one of the great things we did was go to Jamaica and cover reggae and dancehall, a close cousin to hip hop. And Doug Herzog right here, big reggae fan. He came and partied with us. We would rent out. <laughs> this incredible villa round hill it was like all these villas man like in montego bay and we would go down to cover sunsplash and interview shaba ranks shine head different acts that were hot on the dance hall scene but to your point i'm still not sure who paid for that oh boy here we go (laughs) my question are there videos on youtube of that of like all of you guys partying in uh jamaica there's a video on facebook of it there's a video on facebook i actually figured out how to pull it off. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, showed, it. I showed it to Freddie the other day. He showed it to me. <laughs> I had seen it ages ago, man, but it was such a great moment. One of our, probably my second time to Jamaica. The first time we ended up, we stayed at this place called Hedonism, which was not a good look for me. It was like all-inclusive, like camp. It was like staying at a camp where they, you know, protect you from those natives. Or mm. in, in the thing, I was like, no, 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 I don't dig this. I want to like get. It's also like a singles kind of place. It was like a, a singles kind of pseudo freaky with yeah. like chubby people wearing togas and shit. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? You know, people would be nude, but I don't want to see them naked. I'm like, yo, I need to get away from this place. But they gave us the <laughs> joint to stay in. I remember Ziggy. The whole Ziggy Marley, the whole Marley uh, clan, all the brothers and sisters showed up. They came in for me to interview. And this was one of the first times I realized the impact of the show. I'd never met them. Of course, Bob Marley, iconic, right? Here's his offspring, his family. And they're all saying like gesturing that's him that's him and i'm like looking behind myself like who are they talking about and these guys had had the big at that time if you was international your your satellite dish was 15 feet in diameter well they had the money to have a satellite dish and they all would watch would watch the show so they all knew who i was and that was i'm glad i'm thinking of the first time when i realized what? Like, they knew who I was. They're like, man, that's like, this fab, this fab. And, um, yeah. And they, and Ziggy and them told me though, he said, man, nah, you don't want to stay here, man. You need to go to Kingston. <laughs> to get, I'm like, yo, this is not the real flavor. I'm like, I can't even get some rice and peas or some jerk or curry chicken here. To, you know, West Indian food is only served on Wednesday. I'm like, what is that? Like, I'm here. I need to do it. So then, you we went, would, then the show went to Round Hill and stayed yes. in the William Paley. Yes, uh, we stayed in the villa that was owned. Round Hill is a unique setup. These individual villas are owned by people that you that they then rent them out. They're rented out by the Round Hill, like, you know, people that run it. But you have these beautiful villas and the 
the main villa was owned by William Paley, who was a TV legend. He built, like, I think CBS. CBS. He was a pioneer. And this was where he would go to chill out. And so we're in this incredible villa, swimming pool, infinity edge overlooking the ocean. It was like literally like the plushest amazing situation and all the acts are coming to the hotel we're filming we're in the pool we got shaba we got coca tea we got this one coming and going then we go to sunsplash and and stay up until they call it sunsplash because the the show goes on to 10 11 o'clock the next month you literally had the sun come up while the top acts are performing that was nirvana i mean not the group but it was just like (laughs) a pinnacle moment for me really getting to know Jamaica and filming all these acts, showcasing them on Yo. Actually, we helped spawn a whole thing. When you when you think back on your on your time doing Yo MTV raps, what do you miss the most about it? That's a good question. You know what I miss the most, I have to say, because um I like me and Peter were friends before Yo MTV rap. So we were hanging out in the same circuit, checking in, going to shows, you know, he would come to those early hip hop shows in the downtown scene. So Peter and I knew each other. Ted Demi, he became like a brother to me. And Peter stepped back from producing Yo! to do other things. Peter would produce a lot of, um, uh, what do you call that stuff, Doug, where you make all the little things in between? The, the, the uh, interstitials, the promo interstitials. Interstitials, yeah. on-air promos. Peter would go to animation festivals and find the weird, wild animation, and then we'd create the little MTV ID, things like that. Ted then became the the guy that was really running the show, and we just had such a close relationship. So I really miss both of them because, sadly, both of them passed away like way too young. Ted was such an incredible guy. His energy was boundless. He's a nephew of Jonathan Demi, the great director, Academy Award winner who also passed. And Ted was just, I mean, we had so much in common. You know, we had the same passion for the right music, wanted to die direct. And he, Ted started doing, you know, music videos not long after I did. He, he, he was directing. We'd be showing each other. And then even the way we would do Yo!, We'd be interested in angles and setups and, you know, little things, uh, filmic things were part of what how we would work. Like, let's have this for the opening shot. And we used to talk about Batman angles, like in the Batman show, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like turning the camera on, on, on angles. So those are things that made working with him and doing Yo! so perfect for that brief period of time that we did. And we knew this most incredible thing. That's why I would never try to redo that. It was such a special thing to make for, to be a part of your MTV raps. But the most important aspect when people to this day, man, Fab, we wish you on TV raps. We wish you'd be back on. But I go, dude, it really wasn't me. It was the acts that happened at that time. That was the critical moment. When you look at the acts that debuted next to me on your MTV raps, these are the individuals that created the moles for most that most rappers still fit when Tupac Snoop you know NWA name them they almost all debuted next to me being interviewed on a national um, on a national basis and then um you know some of the best are still out there doing their thing which is pretty cool but so many people that really carved out the molds for various genres of rap for various types of rap um, you know, that all happened at that point in time. So it's yeah, pretty I amazing. Mean, 
not to take anything away from the artists, but to your credit, maybe they wouldn't have resonated as much if you hadn't had the instinct to say, let's go out and, and be with them, you know, not in a studio in a, in a, a real environment and, you know, really showcase them in a, in a way that they weren't normally showcased. Yeah, I think that was really um, like it It all worked out like really perfectly to be able to take the audience to the streets and to s- definitely something I'm glad we did. We wanted to delineate from what other VJs on MTV did and at that. And then soon after, many other remote shoots began to happen. MTV was like, OK, well, let's run around here. Let's do this. Let's take the cameras out and shush film people. That became more of a thing that um, you would see on the channel. Well, hip hop has evolved and uh, continues to get bigger. Yeah. And still doing its thing. And so are you, Freddie. And we are so happy and pleased and grateful that you came and joined us today. Uh, oh, you're, a, you're a true renaissance man and a great guest. So we appreciate that. Man, it's been so good. Fab Five Freddy, also known as Frederick Braithwaite, one of the coolest guys you're ever going to meet, I think, right? He's very, very cool. Uh, I've talked to him before and he's consistently very cool. By the way, the fun fact, that's how Jen and I first met. Jen did a great story on the origin of Yom TV raps for Vulture, right? Uh, a couple of years ago? Yeah, we were doing a whole like hip hop week at Vulture and I did a piece on the very first episode of Yom TV raps and you and Fab Five Freddy were both among my sources. Yeah, and you've always been, I think, uh, pretty interested in, you know, not only the history of hip hop, but the history of MTV and hip hop and how it finally made its way to the MTV airwaves. Yeah, Honestly, one of my favorite books of all time is The Oral History of MTV. I just had so much fun reading that book. I know I should say it's like, you know, Charles Dickens, but it's not. It's The Oral History of MTV. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, to come back to that idea of hip hop and and how, again, like MTV was was a little bit late to it um, because it had been around since like the late 70s. And we talked about this with Freddie a little bit, just the reticence to, to put Black artists on MTV because of this you know, supposed idea that this was supposed to be like rock and roll and that wasn't rock and roll. It still doesn't sit totally right with me, but I'm glad that UMTV raps finally existed. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. And it and it probably shouldn't. You know, there was certainly something underlying there. I know mm-hmm. the people who were programming MTV in those days were mostly radio guys and they looked at the MTV playlist like they would look at an AOR album-oriented rock. For those of you who are not familiar with radio lingo, an album-oriented rock playlist, which was largely pop and rock and very little, if any, black music. MTV would occasionally play something like Prince, got forced into playing you know, Michael Jackson over time. It was, uh, it was a lot of white rock bands early on. Yeah, it was. It wasn't just limited to hip hop. Like you said, I mean, Michael Jackson had to finagle his way onto the air. Michael Jackson. Yeah. It's it's crazy. One of the most important video. They had to push him onto the air. I mean, I was, I, well, I got there right after Michael had finally broken through, but you know, the stories were still fresh and it was a struggle between Sony Music, who was Michael's label and MTV. They both will tell you a different story. You can probably read some of it in that book. You it is in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, MTV, uh, you know, the early days, uh, they did not have a diverse playlist. Michael, the biggest artist ever, right? The Elvis of our generation had to fight his way on. And I think there was clearly a miscalculation, um, perhaps, by the people who were programming in that white kids from all around the country wouldn't necessarily want to listen to hip hop, which was absolutely dead wrong. Um, and I think that became obvious as soon as UMTV Raps 
went on the air and everybody started to watch it. Couldn't have been more wrong. And you could imagine what a struggle it was for Ted Demi and Peter Doherty to really bang the doors. And they did, you know, of all the executives, myself included, to fight to get Yom TV raps on the air because they just loved that music. They felt it had something to offer and they felt the audience should be given the choice and to, you know, to see it and hear it and then decide for themselves. And they very quickly decided. Yes, they fought for their right to party and they finally got it. And it's, it's just one of those things that I think younger generations, the idea that it was hard to get hip hop on MTV, I, I'm sure they cannot wrap their minds around it because it's it's the dominant music in our culture now. Yeah. And, and took over MTV, quite frankly, in a lot of different ways, you know, both, you know, musically and through a lot of the uh, original programming they did. And of course, you know, its influence on global culture at this point is immeasurable. I think hip hop was going to get there anyway, somehow. But, mm-hmm. you know, when we did match rap music with MTV, it was like a rocket ship that took off into the suburban homes of America and everything changed. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, well, it was great to talk to Fab Five Freddy. I think one of the smart things that, that Freddie did as the host of Yo was to to take the show out into the streets because that's not how things were necessarily being done at that time. You know, the VJs, they would they would do remotes sometimes, but most of the time they were kind of in a in a studio. And I think taking it out to New York, LA, all these different locations with the artists just really brought it to life and made that culture seem so vibrant. No question about it. Freddie was at the center of many cultural scenes and this one most important. And he was in the right place at the right time. And he helped the music get out there, you know, via MTV. It was great to have him here. We really enjoyed talking to him. We hope you enjoyed listening and uh, we'll see you next on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.